What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you your weekly look at what's going on in pop culture and a look back at a pop culture king today. I am joined by my co-host, as always, Dave Martin Swagger. What's going on, man? Theon Greyjoy, Emmy nominated dog. Hey. How about that? Hey, we're going to be talking Emmy noms and looking back at the career of Quentin Tarantino as a lead up to the very anticipated movie once upon a time in hollywood but before we do hit that subscribe button if you're watching on youtube and go to soundcloud.com slash nostalgia pod to find all the ways to catch the podcast also shameless plug to follow our nostalgia best of 2019 playlist though we aren't talking music today we are going to be adding songs from projects we like over the week so check that out and stay up to date spotify spotify dave you said it Dion Greyjoy. give me your emmy nomination thoughts what, what stood out to you Th- that's a, a bit of a surprise we'll get to that but overall i think it's a pretty good crop of nominee shows and performers you have to remember that in the peak tv era where there's about 500 scripted shows every year many of them quite good there's going to be omissions so it's hard to think everything's perfect so you just want to make sure they're really nabbing the right stuff and i think growing as tv continues to grow i think overall it's a pretty strong strong crop even if there are some perplexing omissions and surprising choices like there is every year uh, what was your initial thought i agree with pretty much everything you said the big headline that came out of it in a lot of places was game of thrones breaks the record for most nominations for a single season of television yeah. and for a season of television that a lot of people were down on or disappointed by in some ways and you can check out our thoughts on that go to youtube.com slash nostalgia pod check out our breakouts for each episode of game of thrones as well as our overall season thoughts my, my feeling is Game of Thrones, is, as we, we've talked about on the podcast, one of the last monocultural cultural shows. And I think since this is the last time they can nominate these people, they wanted to kind of give them a little love, a little appreciation. It's almost like a, a show achievement award, so to speak. You know, it's funny because I, I think if, if there's going to be one or two seasons that could break it, it probably would have been like that two, three, four season range where the show is really yes, exactly. at its peak. But I guess the, they'll they'll take it. Overall, though, the thing that stood out to me was just HBO and Netflix dominating the nominations. I mean, 137 for HBO, 117 for Netflix, and then the next closest was NBC with like 58 or something along those lines. It's yep. 60 awards separate the second and third most nominated station. What do you make of that? Yeah, and last year, a lot of headlines were made about Netflix actually passing HBO for the first time last year. And along that, those lines, Marvel's Mrs. Maisel when it won for Best Comedy, was the first streaming comedy to win that prize. That's, of course, for Amazon. And then Handmaid's Tale Season 1 won Best Drama two years ago for Hulu. And Netflix, you know, was last to the party in terms of, like, major prizes. Yet, overall, they have the biggest uh, breadth of high-end shows among those streamers, even if they haven't won the big prize yet. But it, it shouldn't surprise you that HBO is right there, of course, especially when they have Thrones and Veep this turn or this time around to get nominated once again but yeah netflix just makes a lot of stuff and a lot of it's good so I, it shouldn't be surprising to anyone hulu only having 20 noms mm. tough look and like there are some hulu shows that didn't get any love this year like shrill and pen 15 and rami for example i know shows new shows people like but overall you just got to remember that the cultural footprint and thus campaign dollars put in for Netflix shows just really trumps, uh, you know, over Hulu and 
you know, Amazon, which also kind of lacks a, a big volume of shows apart from like a big stalwart like Maisel. Nothing too surprising, to be honest. Actually, the ones that Hulu did get to were a little bit confusing. Pet, the Pen15 writers got nominated for Best Comedy Writers, but then Hand, Hands Maze Tale wasn't up for Best Drama, but somehow its actors could be nominated, and it was a very confusing yeah. look for the awards. So the overall like eligibility period is, of this was June 1st, 2018, last year, through May 31st of this year. Now, the way it worked, you have to at least premiere before that deadline date to get into the period. But if you have episodes that are like out of the period, because you know the season obviously takes a while, you can get in the next time around. That's what Handmaid's Tale just did for their last season. Just kind of like sneaking in some noms they probably won't even win. Mm-hmm. Kind of weird yeah. category fraud. <laughs> um, I don't think that should be allowed. I feel like a season, whether it's split or not, should only be able to be eligible in one uh, Emmy year. Maybe you pick which one you want to run in, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what I would say. But I mean, to that point, you know, last year there was no Thrones or Veep to be nominated. This year, no Handmaid's Tale Season 3. Americans is gone, obviously, off the air. Black Mirror Season 5, not this year. Euphoria, not this year. Stranger Things Season 3. Big Little Lie Season 2. Atlanta, The Crown, mm-hmm. uh, Westworld, Silicon Valley. A lot of shows we come to expect getting a lot of love, either stop stop airing or are in between periods. So I think that actually opened up some real estate for other shows, which is pretty exciting. Definitely. Why don't we look through a couple of the categories, maybe shout out any any nominations or anything that we were excited about. I guess I'll start with the comedy series category, best comedy series. This is probably the most stacked category. I think it, we felt that way last year as well. But I mean, just going down the line, Barry, Fleabag, The Good Place, Maisel, Russian Doll, Shit's Creek and Veep. Pretty cool that Shit's Creek got the nomination show it's going into its sixth season very cult following on on netflix uh it's been airing up in canada and netflix picked it up and really has brought it to the the foreground for a lot of people who are calling it you know arrested development um basically just in canada though so it's pretty interesting what else has stood out to you yeah shit's creek is very interesting because it's not a netflix show at all they Mm -hmm. do not produce it they don't fund it at all they just distribute it to people in the u.s and obviously Netflix has built the audience for this show. I've heard evangelizing the past few years for it. Um, I was at, I never really expected it to break through this way. Um, you have to think too, like this is a tough category. I mentioned like a show like Rami, that you know, freshman show, not watched that much. Really hard to see that breaking through. But other stuff that is more popular, like Glow, which was nominated last time, not here. Uh, Insecure on HBO did not crack through. Better Things from Pamela Adlin also not here. And then either shows they've nominated before, like Blackish, uh, Kimmy Schmidt, Comsky Method, they get some acting nons for that show. So no matter who, what your choice is for comedy, the obvious consensus is that it's a fucking ridiculously stacked yeah. category and has been for quite some time. It's more stacked than drama, which is really interesting to think about. You know, the top tier of comedy has been strong in the top tier of drama for a few years now. Almost equally as stacked, uh, just looking through, limited series, um, Chernobyl, Escape at the Denimore. Fossey, Verdon, Sharp Objects, and When They See Us. We haven't taught, we haven't touched on uh, Escape of the Denimora, but we've seen, we've touched on or talked about or mentioned these other shows. We haven't talked about When They See Us on the pod either, but we're, I th- we're very aware of it. Uh, I mean, from everything here, it seems like it's at least a four, maybe even five horse race in this category. I, I have to imagine Chernobyl's the favorite, but man, the really tough category to pick. Yeah, this is a tough one because uh, Dana Mora is going to probably get some love for Patricia Arquette in the acting category, although that's also a tight race as well. 
Yeah, this is because you got two HBO shows. I think they're definitely going to push for Chernobyl because it's newer and I think which is overall more popular. But then you have Netflix with When They See Us, another huge success for them. And then Fosse Verdon probably, I think if we're going to cross one off, it's probably Fosse Verdon, a show that we still liked a lot, Mm -hmm. but also had a bit of a mixed dialogue surrounding it. You can watch a review for more on that. Honestly, what's out to me, though, is limited series is actually fucking really stacked this year. No Catch-22 mm-hmm. from Hulu. No Maniac yep. from Netflix. No Little Drummer Girl from AMC. That's probably the biggest omission if you had to pick yep. one. No The Act, which got some other noms. So it, oh, and, 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 of course, no True Detective. Yeah. Season three. Pr- definitely an exciting category. Love that one. W- what else stood out to you, or what were, what were you surprised at? Honestly, drama series. Usually not one you expect much to you know, knock your socks off. The Emmys generally nominate stuff multiple times at the the top tier categories once they nominate things. So a lot of usual suspects, Better Call Saul, Game of Thrones, Succession is here, that's great. Pose is here, that's great. This Is Us is back once again. Ozark, uh, Netflix pushes for that, it gets it done. Killing Eve back once again, even if me and you aren't as high in Killing Eve season two, it still makes sense that it's here. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bodyguard getting in, which is really exciting as well. It's a dead man switch, Vicky. But <laughs> what surprised me, like I'm not surprised that the deuce isn't here. It has been yeah. here before. Billions, same thing, not here. I would have loved sex education. I would have loved my brilliant friend. Not realistic. But what actually legitimately surprised me is the total lack of noms, really, for Homecoming last year. The Julia Roberts sled show yeah. with Sam Esmail on Amazon. Totally mm-hmm. not here at all. Julia wasn't nominated either. Bobby Cannavale, Stephen James, nothing. That that's probably my number one uh, surprise of the of this whole thing. Yeah, it seems like uh, I mean I don't know all the categories by heart, but it seems like just completely overlooked as a show. Have to imagine Amazon's pretty bummed about that, especially with the second season coming back out. They won't, probably want a feather in their cap to uh, kind of push for that when it whenever that's ready. Yeah, that that is surprising, and you know it kind of just speaks to uh, the level of uh, TV quality right now. And you know we we're definitely past the you know peak tv golden age tv however you however you want to put it but just the the bar has been raised for all these shows and we've we've been talking you know obviously off air about how much tv we've been watching just because the the quality demands it and there's so many shows that are worth watching right now and you just can't keep up with it i mean think about even in that that drama series category you talked about i mean we don't talk about ozark on the show pose or this is us that's three of the right. what people are saying is the best shows on television that we're just not able to keep up up with just by the fact that there's too much television and we have to pick and choose right pretty crazy moving down to lead actress in a drama series you, you talked about it before but four uh no sorry this is where Amelia clark got i wanted to talk about the uh uh supporting in a, in a drama series four yeah. game of thrones people nominated four what <laughs> crazy that just seems stupid what just came out today, HBO did not actually submit for Gwendolyn Christie, Alfie Allen, or Carice Van Hooten. Uh, yeah, Melisandre got a guest actress nomination for the one scene where she spews some Lord of Light shit and lights some <laughs> torches. Fine. <laughs> awesome. Man, I- I've never seen anyone walk out into a field the way that she did. Dustin. I know, man. Oof. It-, it-, it was Powerful pretty badass. stuff. But you know what suck- sucks about this? I mean, obviously... You're over-nominated stuff. And if we're, if we're making choices, Lena Headey probably should have won in past seasons. But she is very little dialogue mm-hmm. in this the last season. She does not move around much Aww. at all. It's definitely just the weakest written Cersei season. 
yet she's still here. So in terms of picking who the hell wins this category, it's pretty wild. I I, I really don't know. Maybe they just go with Fiona Shaw. <laughs> I was going to say, Fiona Shaw probably would be my pick. I mean, Maisie Williams, I guess, because she had probably the biggest moments out of the four. Maybe Gwendolyn Chris. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's just so hard to to say i would probably vote shaw we're in the summer of sophie right now maybe that'll impact voting as it's going on right now i'm not sure the one thing that does suck about the abundance of throne acting noms in this category is that reese seahorn from better call saul has still not been nominated for her role as kim wexler which is just horrible man i mean the, the fact that gwendolyn christie even though she was great in the scenes that she got got nominated over her is really just frustrating because every time we talk about Saul we come back to Rhea Seahorn really is like the the anchor of that and without her that show doesn't really work and the audience doesn't get as much out of it so definitely disappointing just kind of looking one category down a a bit of the same for supporting actor in a drama series I mean like you already mentioned Alfie Allen got nominated but Peter Dinklage and Nikolai Coster Waldo uh, getting nominated again then we have two Sauls a House of Cards nomination <laughs> Michael, Michael Kelly, Kelly still. and then Chris God. Sullivan for This Is Us. What, what do you make of that category? Yeah, and as I mentioned, no Bobby Cannavale from Homecoming, and also probably even more disappointing, no Kieran Culkin from Succession. Would love to Succession see Succession just criminally underrepresented. Yeah, well, Michael Kelly had he had been nominated before for House of Cards, and it's just ridiculous that it's getting any more attention for this final post Kevin Spacey season. And Esposito hadn't been nominated last time either, so that's actually a bit surprising, I guess, just because Gus isn't in the show that no. much. I, I'm not sure who the pick is here. Uh, it's probably just going to be Dinklage again because he won last time he was nominated, and he's won a few times already, so I wouldn't have a problem with that. He did have a good season for the final season. Yeah, d- definitely a tough one. Uh, just kind of looking through, a couple of nominations I was really pumped about. Lead actress in a drama series. I'm pulling for Jodie Comer, like all the way in that. Yes. She's absolutely electric, and even if Killing Eve season two isn't its best work, it's still like she's still absolutely stunning in that show. No ho, Hank, Anthony Kerrigan getting that nomination in the supporting actor in a comedy series, very exciting stuff. And also Barry just getting three in the supporting actor with Stephen Root and Henry Winkler getting the nod. That'll be interesting to see if they they pull votes from each other. Um, maybe Tony Shalhoub will get the win there again. Uh, for Maisel. Any, anything else that stood out to you or anything else you're pumped for? I know some people are pulling for Jim Parsons from Big Bang Theory for his final go nah. at it. I'm not going to... There's no spilled milk <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Television movie, Deadwood did get nominated, although no Ian McShane or Timothy Oliphant. Interesting. Bandersnatch is that category locked up, dog. <laughs> yeah. Romanoffs, notably, was not uh, nominated in that category, yep. which makes sense to me and you. I mentioned Chris Van Hoot. Oh, that's right. Uh, Catch-22. No noms for Kyle Chandler or George Clooney. Kind of, kind of tough for the Hollywood stars, man. No, no Julia, no Clooney. Uh, Amy Adams is probably going to lose in her category. You know, Laura Dern didn't win for the tail last year. The, the The notion that movie stars can come on the TV and just win awards by showing up—it's uh, not really the case anymore. It, it's fucking, it's fucking spooky out here. <laughs> spooky out here. So, some really good signs, though. I think in the nominations. More than half of the writers in the comedy writing category uh, are female, uh, including Phoebe Waller-Bridge, a couple of the people from Pen15, yeah, Amy Poehler and Natasha Leone from Russian Doll. Just really awesome that, that these shows are getting the recognition that they so rightfully deserve. 
you know, I, I keep I keep looking at comedy series, man, because Veep is such a such a staple. And you got, you know, the last season and it being so, so strong. I wonder if it'll get that like legacy award or if the, the torch will continue to be passed. I mean, Fleabag would be my choice, but it's really stat category. Overall, I'm really pleased with the That's with Maisel winning the last two times, too. Yeah, that one's super competitive. Pose, an- another show that is getting a lot of love. It's a show we don't talk about much, but basically the the premise is it tells uh, tells stories about people in the 1980s and the black and Latino LGBTQ community, uh, particularly the the ballroom scene in New York City. Um, they got a best drama and best actor, uh, actor, uh, best actor, Octa. Billy, Billy Porter. <laughs> yeah, uh, for Billy Porter, which is pretty awesome. Just overall, it's it's nice to see these sorts of shows getting recognized, even though they probably aren't the most popular shows or, or the most well-rated shows, uh, you know, on television. Feel bad for Richard Madden not getting that nomination for Bodyguard, but Dead Man Switch. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I also feel bad for DRC <laughs> Corden, who is fantastic on Good Place and didn't get a Best Supporting Actress nom, especially, uh, especially because there was like one episode where the whole episode was just her imitating the four or five other people in the show. It was just her the whole time. So <laughs> I thought for sure she would get a nomination for that, but unfortunately did not. I would have loved to see uh, Timothy Simons as well for Veep. Yeah. But didn't Joan. happen. <laughs> Joan oh, <Adam>. God. <laughs> but yeah, I think overall we're, we're pretty pleased with this and we'll be doing our, our Emmy yep. picks the week before the nomination. So sometime September. Yeah, so would that be September like 17th or something like that? So... Yeah, I believe it's the third Sunday. It's 22nd this year. So stay tuned for that. Why don't we move on to talk about Quentin Tarantino, legendary filmmaker, uh, film writer, overall just person of, of movie making. So yeah, Quentin Tarantino, his, uh, what, 10th? Is his 10th or 11th movie coming out? 10th. 10th. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, a lot of other really talented actors in it. Uh, what Emil Hirsch, Margaret Qualley, uh, oh Al Pacino, I was having like Pacino a bit role, it, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, Dakota Fanning, a lot, lot of uh, really good people in it. We're very excited to uh, to see that and to review that. And we thought because we we both really like Tarantino and think he's a uh, undeniably one of the greatest filmmakers of our generation or of our lifetime, we wanted to kind of run through his filmography. Starting with Reservoir Dogs, obviously 1992. You know, it, it's interesting to think about Tarantino because I feel like when I think about him, I think about very specific times of him ma- making movies. There's like that early Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, which is like the crime like wave for him. And then he moves into this more like, I don't know, spaghetti Western, mm-hmm. Asian film uh, influenced, you know, Kill Bill through what bastards or Django type yep. thing. That's about right. Yeah. Uh, even ending with hateful eight, this, it's like a weird run for him. And now he's moving into once upon a time in Hollywood, which I'm not sure if this is going to be like a move into a next phase of his career or not. I was surprised he's only 56. I feel, I kind of expect him to be older. He obviously reservoir dogs came out in 92 and his peers, his generation of filmmakers, like the post, like new Hollywood run as all guys and men and women in their late, 50s early 60s at this point so your paul thomas anderson's your david fincher's your david o russell's as well as um the guys who were making foreign films at the time like Quaro and del toro in a re2 uh it's really quite the 
quite the crop and even like maybe less heralded people like Alexander Payne and Cameron Crowe and Wes Anderson of course too come at the end uh-huh. uh, it's it's a really impressive group of filmmakers oh and Spike Jones we mentioned last week when he does make movies is also in this group there's a lot of uh a lot of them have really singular filmmaking identities, especially like a Fincher and a PTA. And you can talk for hours about if Tarantino is better than Paul Thomas Anderson or whose films you like more. It's kind of a dumb thing to talk about because they all make so many different types of film. But Tarantino has always stood out for his unique writing style in terms of how mm-hmm. he tells his stories as what well, how he frames his narratives. And it also factors into... Uh, how edgy he is in terms of the themes. He's obviously been quite the controversial filmmaker, and that also goes along with the fact that he's a a bit of an odd guy, to, <laughs> yeah. to put it bluntly. Um, and sometimes it's harmless things. Sometimes it's uh, more more problematic stuff. We can get to that as mm-hmm. it comes up. But you know, his filmmaking legacy is uh, obviously undeniable. And there's tons of scholarship about Tarantino. We just wanted to kind of go through everything and get it on record because i mean hateful eight came out before we started this pod so we really haven't talked about tarantino at, at great length really at all on the pod yet so exciting to talk about him now yeah why don't we start with, with reservoir dogs um <clears throat> 1992 starring harvey Keitel, tim roth chris penn steve buscemi lawrence tierney mark madsen and tarantino himself is in there michael madsen uh, uh M- michael madsen sorry i mean this was the first tarantino movie i ever saw and really? interesting it, and I mean, it's it's funny because when I think about when I saw it, I was I think I was in high school and it really just drew me in for the aesthetic it brought. You know, it's these guys they are walking in the same suits. They're walking next to each other. It's like this very stylized looking thing. And it's 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 interesting because it's so uh, sectionalized into the, the before and after of the film. Yeah. You know, it, it centers around this this heist that goes wrong and it's the lead up to the heist and tim roth working as this undercover agent who's infiltrated this group and then the post heist and figuring out like who gave them away who tipped off the cops and i i'm much more drawn to that second part the the like almost like a bottle episode of being stuck in this warehouse and like them interrogating each other and trying to figure it out there's obviously the the very famous scene of michael madsen torturing the the guy that he takes from the bank the, the cop um so uh just a, a lot to like about this movie. How, how do you feel about Reservoir Dogs? You know, come to think of it, I'm really not sure what the first Tarantino movie I, I, I've i seen. Maybe it's Kill Bill. I'm not really sure. But either way, he, he's a guy who made a lot of movies before we were had fully formed adult brains to enough to appreciate the movies. Right. So I've actually enjoyed rewatching some of them more recently because I know I remember I watched some of these when I was, you know, a teenager or in college uh-huh. and I just didn't quite fully appreciate you know what Tarantino does, but Reservoir Dogs, as you kind of mentioned, is really just—it's it, really all dialogue. There, there aren't like set pieces. There's the brief chase when you watch uh, Mr. Pink Buscemi like run away, and there are some gunshots and there's a brief car chase moment. But it's really all about the dialogue in that uh, warehouse and how they you know, the web everyone's uh, weaving with their words and the nonlinearity of it all, which he has done in several other movies, is uh, just kind of really. I think really effective because again, you don't see any of the heist on on its face. That's a really bold thing, especially for your debut movie. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that's, that's, that's what stands up and like holds up the best about this movie is that you have this world-class group of actors, which is the case for all of his movies really. But it, the fact that the script is so tight and Tarantino is the 
uh, sole writer of all of his screenplay. That script, I think, it drives the movie. It's the only thing there to drive the movie and, and inform the performances. Um, and it's funny, he actually funded the making of this movie, which, again, a super cheap movie, like made it for under two million bucks, but on the sale of his true romance script. And it's kind of heralded, I guess, as like a new, the start of a new way for independent film. And he kind of kept that going because this movie was made with Miramax. Yep. And Tarantino's relationship with Harvey Weinstein is uh, prolific from a filmmaking mm-hmm. perspective, but also uh, is not without its issues. But uh, yeah, this is the start of that. You, you know what? When I think of Reservoir Dogs, I think about all those little glimpses of when you really start to get a sense of uh, Tarantino's style. And you talked about the dialogue and how that's like the real driver of the movie. And, you know, you think about like whether it's Tim Roth on top of the building with his uh, his cop partner kind of running the lines, making sure that he knows his whole backstory, understands all the steps. Um, but you have that like awesome uh, background of like I think they're they're in L.A. Um, and just like the whole like city behind them. Or you think about during that Michael Madsen torture scene when he like walks out to his car to get the gasoline and like you have uh stuck in the middle with you playing and like just like the the music choices the way that's this tracking shot behind him as he walks out how slow and deliberate it is but you're like hanging on the edge of your seat with all of it and it's Tarantino has this amazing way of taking these things that I think other filmmakers could make seem not as interesting and he just adds these little flourishes to it, whether it's the music cutting out as you walk outside of the warehouse and then coming back in when you open the door, things like that. He just, his little flourishes, little touches, you can start to see that in this. And I think obviously he really perfects that with Pulp Fiction. We'll talk about that in a minute, but just really cool to see this as his first movie. And obviously the potential there is undeniable. Any last thoughts about Reservoir Dogs? Uh, it's also the first movie, his first movie, but the first time Tarantino cameos in his own film. Yeah. Um, and of course, he dies off screen in this. But, you know, I think it, his first or really his only big chunk of dialogue is where he's describing the it's like the like a virgin scene. Yep. <laughs> and, um, very, very Tarantino. I'm sure plenty of people are not happy with with that one. But it's on brand from the start. <laughs> Yeah, he's really eccentric. And he also is in Pulp Fiction uh, playing uh, yes. not himself, but the playing friend. A, a friend of right. Jules. Uh, that's quite a funny scene as well. So yeah, Pulp Fiction, 1994, uh, starring John Travolta, Samuel L. Jackson, Uma Thurman, Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, uh, Bruce Willis, Ving Rhames, the Rosanna Arquette, ton of people in this. And I don't know how to really describe the plot, just it follows these different stories around these different crimes happening in LA, you know, uh, and kind of the escapades around that, I guess, so to speak. Tarantino received a a best director nomination for this, uh, best original screenplay, which he won for this, his first uh, Academy Award. Um, This was his true breakout movie. Reservoir Dogs was uh, a solid start, but this is where he kind of propelled his career into another app, another stratosphere. And, I actually rewatched this prior to the podcast, and what I just found amazing is how this is a two-hour, thirty-four-minute movie, and it really felt like I was watching it for maybe like an hour. Like it's not, it didn't feel slow at all. Um, Even scenes where it, you know, there there didn't seem to be much happening. There's just so much subcontext and everything that that's going on. It's just really fascinating to watch. Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, I think it another non-linear story but mm-hmm. kind of on steroids because there's like these seven distinct 
parts to the movie and i think the the fourth part's kind of told in two own two of its own segments but i mean pulp fiction again a classic film usually heralded as the best tarantino movie um certainly the most influential most important movie he ever made um another independent uh you know beacon for that kind of filmmaking and and what stands out to me, of course, is, is the obvious stuff. Is because the non-linear storytelling, you kill off uh, Vega, mm-hmm. and then you bring him back yep. through the virtues of your of your timelines, uh, time head cannon, and uh, it was just genius. Yep, uh, way to go! And the whole framing of how v- Vince Vega's in the bathroom the whole time and living, <laughs> and then Samuel Jackson's crisis of faith, Jules' crisis of faith, um, yep. with getting lucky and stuff. It's just framed so well. Meanwhile, you have so many iconic uh, dialogue moments, oh like uh, "Say what again" mm-hmm. in the very beginning. That whole mention, like scene with Jules, where he's yeah, you know, he he recites the the Bible verse and all that shit, just iconic stuff. That's uh, even just more funny, like the whole gimp scene where Ving Rhames is sexually assaulted mm-hmm. after being uh, kidnapped in that store, and then Uma Thurman, who got a Best Supporting Actress nomination from this movie was just an immediate icon character of the 90s of you know modern filmmaking uh, it's just there's so much here i mean this won the palm d'or too so mm-hmm. it really kicked off uh qt's career and weinstein's success from the get-go honestly it made miramax the you know powerhouse that it was for you know almost a decade yeah it, <laughs> thinking about how he balances these moments of tenseness with just like hilarity you think about when bruce willis goes back to get his father's watch which the whole scene where the the dad's war buddy played by christopher walken is like telling how they they got the watch to him it's just like so ridiculous on so many levels but then he goes back and you're kind of like oh shit like who's gonna be waiting for him in here like who's gonna get him and then you don't really see anybody until like you said vince like walks out of the bathroom and he just lights him up and then the toaster's going off. The whole thing is just like hilarious. And then even, you know, the he takes something like you said where Ving Rhames is sexually assaulted, but then right afterwards you get some of the most iconic dialogue from it where he goes, You hear that motherfucker? We're about to go medieval on your ass. Like just <laughs> iconic stuff. Like just crazy. Um or when when, you know, they're they're driving Marvin to wherever and vega shoots him in in the face by accident and the whole you must have hit a bump man <laughs> i'd hit no motherfucking bump <laughs> the whole thing right after um even ending with the you know the jewels in the diner scene at the end yeah it's the one that says bad it's motherfucker great. on it just incredible <laughs> so you know pulp fiction really propels him to this point where he can start to make any projects he wants to and that kind of leads into jackie brown which received mixed reviews you know i think the critique of jackie brown a lot of times is it's a long movie that feels long at times and that's that, that's a bit um it's a bit hit and miss for tarantino in, in, his, in his filmography because I, I looking through the movies here it's just like you know something like kill bill and inglorious bastards those are long movies that don't feel as long but then something mm-hmm. like hateful eight it's like man that movie felt four hours at points you know right i and the thing with so pulp fiction was made for eight million bucks and made two hundred thirteen worldwide, and then Jackie Brown three years later cost twelve million bucks, just as cheap, but only grossed thirty nine million domestic and wasn't even like 
at a foreign release at all. And I think your your stance on Jackie Brown really kind of depends on your familiarity with Quentin Tarantino's movies. Because I think a lot of people just kind of write off the movie if they've even seen it. And there's also a lot of like, you know, film head cinephile people that like really ride for Jackie Brown as like top tier Tarantino. I think it's definitely perhaps at the top of the list for Tarantino movies that you appreciate more on a second viewing once you understand what you're watching and how it's working. Because I think the movie is still quite successful and it's a good movie. The way Samuel Jackson is characterized is great. And you have Robert De Niro playing very off type at the time in, in, in good role as well. And of course, Pam Greer really carries the movie. But it was one as well that I took a while to come around on. And in fact, it was also one of the last Quentin Tarantino movies I actually saw. So I'm actually just really curious, like, what, what do you think the viewership on this is? Because I have the feeling like this one is was just not running on cable as much as his other movies. Oh, that, I, I can't imagine this is a, a very cable movie, especially because some of the backlash after this was uh, around the use of the N-word and racial epithets throughout um, I think it's, they say the N-word close to 40 times in this movie. And famously, Spike Lee came out and talked about how he took issue with Tarantino's use of the N-word in his movies and feeling like he's almost like obsessed with that uh, and using that word in some way. Tarantino famously came back and said, you know, I feel like when you give one word that much power, you should just say it all the time because no word should have that much power. And depending on where you fall on it, I guess you can right. make your own Uh, decisions but certainly controversial in some senses and this is you know it's interesting to think about jackie brown because you think about this came out in 1997 it revives pam greer and robert forster's career but you have samuel l jackson who's a rising star michael keaton who's an established star robert de niro who's already an established star it's got a stacked cast and to only gross 39 million it it feels like a failure at that time too right yeah but in, in a sense, I, I mean, this pays a lot of homage to like 1970s black black exploitation movies, which Pam Greer right. starred in. And I think this really starts to show Tarantino dipping into some of his more unique and uh, textured uh, influences, you know, which we'll start to see, especially with like the, the spaghetti westerns that he'll start to really move into. Right. Robert Forster actually was nominated yeah. for his role in this at the Oscars, too. But yeah, I mean, Samuel Jackson, who's been in six tarantino movies obviously his most frequent collaborator and he was also in true romance he has defended tarantino's use of the n-word in his films and i think in the case of jackie brown because it's a very obvious homage to black exploitation movies it contextually it does feel like it fits and i believe that was slj's point of view Mm -hmm. on the matter but you know this will come up again in in more of his movies but it's kind of interesting that his first two movies, Reservoir Dogs, especially Pulp Fiction, were very controversial in the mainstream just for uh, fetishizing violence. Yep. He was accused of glorifying heroin use in Pulp Fiction, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is pretty fucking ludicrous. But it, it, <laughs> it was said that uh, by Bob Dole, of all people. Yeah, <laughs> considering someone, uh, the character pretty much dies and is brought back to life. Uh, yeah, yeah. Not, not, definitely not, want to do it. Yeah, not, not definitely you. glorified in my eyes, but hey, whatever. <laughs> yeah, and then it has a six-year break, man between uh, Jackie Brown and Kill Bill Volume 1. And, of course, he has a lot of scripts. I mean, soon after this, he's working on the Bastards mm-hmm. script. So he was always a very active guy. Yeah. Um, Natural Born Killers, he had a story credit on, which came out around this time as well. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, getting to, to Kill Bill after Jackie Brown, which was definitely considered a flop for 
you know, QT, you have Kill Bill Volume 1 come out, and that's quite the, quite the comeback. You know, it makes four times as much money. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> Kill Bill is really funny to me, at least just the concept of it. Um, and this is where you start to see a lot of the through lines of this Tarantino universe, where it's definitely connected in ways, you know. Um, so you think back to Uma Thurman's character in Pulp Fiction, and while she's sitting in the the diner with uh, with Vega, she talks about this role she played on TV, where there's these four assassins, and each one is this different type. And when you yeah, when you think about it, it I mean, basically she's describing Kill Bill, and then she's playing the character she would have been in that TV show. It's fucking fascinating. He just doesn't make a big deal out about it. Right. Nowadays, I mean, it, it, you can never do it this way. No. It's kind of cool. And, I mean, even thinking about, like, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, it's like Vega and Jules wear the same suits that the Reservoir Dogs guys wear. So there's even the idea that maybe there's some connection there. And there's other ones that we'll talk about as we go through. But Kill Bill... Um, <laughs> was originally pitched as a four-hour movie. Tarantino wanted to put both one and two together and just put it out there. And the... it was one production. He made them all. Made it all at once. And it, and it feels that way. If you watch them back to back, you can tell it was all made at once. There's, it's very singular. But it's just funny to me that he just wanted to like put it out there that way, and the studio had to be like, "No, we're <laughs> not putting a four-hour movie out. No one's buying tickets." To that. Har- Harvey knew his stuff. Yeah, from the filmmaking side, obviously. <laughs> but obviously, starring uh, Uma Thurman, Lucy Liu, Vivica Fox, Michael Madsen, Daryl Hannah, David Carradine, Gordon Liu. Uh, this is like his real kung fu martial arts movie. His real ode to the uh, the Asian films that he really liked growing up. You know, this team of uh, assassins is taken out by the Bride, who. Uh, is seeking revenge after this this team led by you know who's under Bill tries to kill her and her unborn child. Yeah, the movie it, when I think about Kill Bill. It starts off where you know it has this like awesome opening, and then she's kind of stuck in the hospital there, and you know she's in a coma and being sexually assaulted in there, and then you slowly see her like start to rise and like uh, the way that she like breaks out of that. It's like this escape scene, and then it moves on to her just like tracking down each one and having these like individual fight scenes with them that are also memorable in such different ways like the Vivica A. Fox one is this inside this house and while the while her kids are home she's like having this fight and then like stopping and starting it's awesome and then you think about the one with Lucy Liu and it's like this incredibly grand one where she kills like what like 200 people or something like that The, the crazy 88s yeah blood splattering goes to black and white quick cuts yeah it's uh doesn't even go to animation at one point too yeah i think it does yeah, <laughs> yeah. and then it just i don't the movie doesn't abruptly end it almost ends at the perfect end point mm-hmm. given the four hour runtime we were given here uh but yeah it's it's funny because kill bill Vol- i guess I was talking about in a tandem they come out a year apart um and volume one just has tons of violence you mentioned all the one-on-one duels and of course the the Lucy Liu, Gordon Liu fight, tons of people die, as you said. And then in Cable Volume 2, there's really not much death at all, especially at the hand of uh, Beatrice. You know, she's not really killing that many people. And I think just the way the movies starkly change is is really interesting. I think overall, it's a fucking awesome overall story, the way it's told. Again, another non-linear thing from QT. 
but I think I find volume one more fun to revisit just because I think some of those scenes are just fun to watch um, on their own, pull apart. Obviously, the crazy, crazy 88 scene, just a ridiculous set piece. It's awesome. But the beats with Bill at the end of volume two, I don't think they hit as hard unless you've just watched the rest of it, you know? So I think it just kind of depends what you're looking for. But I really ride for volume one. It's definitely one of my favorites. And uh, yeah, I, I just think there's just so many cool things you can just kind of jump in and appreciate. And I mean, Uma Thurman, it crushes it. But what I will say about volume two that, you know, I always have a hard, I always have a hard time ranking it because of my love of everything with Pai Mei. <laughs> Uh, when she goes to the train, yep. which is just a flashback in her head. And even though he does have some misogynistic marks, I mean, when he's like, bitch, do you speak Cantonese? <laughs> you dumbass? No, you don't. Like, it's, he's just such an asshole. It's awesome. Yeah. And then the whole thing where they fight and he just clowns her ass. Mm. It's great. And we have a scene from that in our channel trailer on YouTube. Pod, so check that out. But Yeah. Volume one is probably my go-to of these two, obviously. No, I totally agree. Um, but it is also important to note that another controversy came out of from Tarantino with mm-hmm. this because of forcing, pressuring Uma Thurman into doing her own stunts yep. in a unsafe car on a you know outdoor track, and she really fucked up her knee and her neck. Mm-hmm. I believe is how it went, and she was not happy with how this went, despite uh, and she felt she was just pressured into doing something unsafe and. It does seem like they've kind of mended the bridge since then. Uh, Maya Hawk, Uma's daughter, is uh, mm-hmm. has a small role in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But you know, an- another another strike on his uh, judgment scale. Let's put it that way. In almost every aspect, I think uh, embodies the idea of like creative genius. But I think that then pushes him t- for perfection with some of these things, and to the point where I think. He, he doesn't want to cut corners, doesn't want doesn't want things to feel inauthentic if he can help it, and that sometimes leads him to not always have the soundest judgment in terms of safety or uh, maybe how things will be perceived. But I, I agree with what you were saying about Kill Bill Volume 1 uh, over Volume 2. Definitely just more fun to watch. If we had to do a rewatchables, I would definitely say Volume 1, Kill Bill. Just yeah. so awesome. Well, we move on to Death Proof. 2007, Kurt Russell, Rosario Dawson... Uh, Rose McGowan, Sidney Poitier, uh, and also Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Uh, yeah, young one. Yeah, young in this. Kurt Russell plays a murderous stuntman who murders young women in a uh, in staged car accidents. This is actually a movie I haven't seen. Um, I, I thought I'd, I'd seen every Tarantino movie. I was looking at his filmography. I was like, Death Proof, huh? And it was released as part of this double feature with Robert Rodriguez's Planet Terror. Uh, it was called Grindhouse. Um, as a uh, ode to you know old grindhouse flicks so i can't really talk too much about the quality of it but i do like the concept and tarantino just continuing to be his weird self and you know having these homages to these like very niche film film traditions in a sense you know he really rides for these things that fall in and out of style right and some of his hardest critics will say that tarantino doesn't actually bring much to the table he's just he watched a lot of movies and he just copied other people's stuff, which I think is a gross simplification that can easily yeah. be refuted. But if he does have a simple movie, it's probably Death Proof. You just gave the plot um, synopsis. That is effectively all there is there. And it, it just kind of it's a poetic justice type ending. Simple metaphor. I don't know. It's it's my least favorite of his. Uh, it was the first 
the only QT movie I watched, and I was just like, I looked at the person next to me, and I was like, yeah, that was that was that was good. <laughs> it's not offensive or anything, but coming off Kill Bill, coming off his '90s run, uh, it's a bit disappointing. And at the time, this was his most expensive movie to date, sixty-seven million. Yet it only grossed twenty-five million here in the states and like less than five hundred k worldwide. Um, so a bit of a flop, and like even more so than Jackie Brown, it's probably it's just something that people just don't know he made. I mean, to your point, you didn't even really know about it. I mean, I, I like I like lots of parts of. I mean, the a lot of there's a lot of car stuff. Obviously, is not to suggest a lot that looks great and it's done cool. And Kurt Russell, I think, is good in the movie. So is Rosario. Uh, Rose McGowan's really good mm-hmm. uh, in a smaller role as well, but. Yeah, it's just, uh, it's just, I think it's just it's a little simpler. And mm-hmm. like, it's cool. Like, it's a cool idea, but it's not as grand or as special. Or not special at all, really, as some of his other stuff. And this was his first one since Miramax like, folded. It was under Dimension Films, which was just another Weinstein film. The rest of his movies were under the Weinstein company, but mm-hmm. it was still under, still with Harvey and stuff. But yeah, the, um, the double feature bill of it all is, is pretty interesting. And he had worked with Robert Rodriguez before, of course. He was a partial director uh, on Sin City in 05. But mm-hmm. yeah, um, if he has a miss on the on the resume, it's definitely this one. Yeah. You want to move on to Inglorious Bastards? Boy, do I. All right. Oblige him. <laughs> 2009. Brad Pitt, Christoph Waltz, Michael Fassbender, a couple others, Eli Roth, Diane Kruger, Melanie Laurent. You know, it's funny rewatching Pulp Fiction recently I noticed that when Brad Pitt or not Brad Pitt Bruce Willis crashes uh hits Ving Rhames uh and they get out of the car Ving Rhames is talking with Kathy Griffin <laughs> as one of the bystanders and I feel like that was one of the first times I can remember like him having these like random people show up to make these cameos like Channing Tatum and Hateful Eight but Inglorious Bastards with Mike Myers <laughs> <laughs> just like yeah. i fet like that was the first time i was like oh he really has like the most random people just show up in these things daniel brule yeah has a good role in this as well yep but man glorious bastards probably i mean this is definitely top three tarantino for me it follows these two separate plots to kill adolf hitler and nazi leadership at the end of world war ii you know one by shoshana uh and one by uh, aldo's bears bastards. yeah bastards where, where do you fall with, with Inglorious Bastards? You a fan? Oh, of course. Yeah, I think I have this three or four on my rankings. Just because it's our introduction to Christoph Waltz yeah. in terms of Hollywood roles. And it's such a memorable introduction because it's literally the beginning of the movie mm-hmm. at that farmhouse scene, which is really immaculately paced movie, you know, right after the title card stuff, classic Tarantino opening. And then you just have this nausea-inducing intensity as uh was landa mm-hmm. just kind of breaks down this uh farmer right yeah for harboring the jews in his floorboards yeah. and while christoph waltz is someone who as we've grown more familiar with his performances and we get it soon again with django it's not it's probably not it's not as new or as fresh as it once was it was just such an amazing coming out party that he just immediately took over the movie and of course, he won the Oscar yep. for for this role, best supporting, and that's something that like really uh, stands out and hold, holds up today. But then on the other hand, you have something that he's not in at all that tavern scene, that bar yeah. scene, uh, where Fassbender has his <laughs> brief moments, and yet again, it's just it's just incredible stuff. So 
even if, I know some people like some critics think the movie is like really messy and while Waltz was great it uh just was kind of jumbled but I just it's really just a bunch of set pieces and I feel like almost all of these set pieces are so so dynamite oh, yeah. that I don't understand how you can be too critical of it yeah and they're they're so dynamite in different ways you know you talk about that opening scene where it's Waltz just like like methodically and slowly tearing like tearing this guy apart at the seams and then he switches over to english and he's like you're hiding the the juice in your floorboards aren't you and the guy just is like yes it, it, but then like you, you talk about like the bar scene and fastbender and everything going on there how the the multiple spies are like all working on these different levels and fastbender is just absolutely electric in that scene dude like when he finally says like well old chap if this is it i hope you don't mind if i go out speaking to kings like that line is just like, <laughs> like that is pure movie making right there. And then you you think about them in the the theater at the end, and you know you have the bastards kind of sneaking in there, and that's probably one of the funniest like Tarantino scenes just in general with like Brad Pitt and his crew having to fake being what French and Italian then t- Italian Gorlami Gorlami <laughs> like just the way that. They keep saying like their names is so ridiculous, and then it ends with this really creepy film or the that that shown of Shoshana burning down the Nazis and the way that that shot and the way that you know like the terror in that scene kind of comes about. Oh, it's just so perfect. Um, I I I would probably put this one or two, maybe maybe even three, thinking about it. But it, I think this is probably when he was at the height of his powers. I mean. This is he. Had, this is the biggest that the most money that he had ever made in a movie, and then Django obviously will top that just three years later. But I think this really pushes him into that stratosphere of like this is a legendary filmmaker. You know, Kill Bill got a lot of love, but then he, like you said, he had Death Proof. So there was like a five year layoff between Kill Bill and Glorious Bastards, and I think this is when he reestablishes himself as like right. a modern genius. Fifteen years after Pulp Fiction, crazy, enough. crazy. Yeah, it's, it's also really cathartic to watch Goebbels and Hitler get fucked up in an <laughs> alternate reality, after all. And as you mentioned, there, there are just some you know really memorable side characters, like uh, the Bear Jew, of course, from Eli Roth. And yeah, man. Oh, yeah, Teddy fucking ball game. <laughs> Family pack. <laughs> I ran the lands down the street. Like you mentioned, though, yeah, there's catharsis in watching Goebbels and Hitler kind of get their comeuppance, but it actually drew some controversy in terms of people saying, you know, does Tarantino, not a Jewish American, uh, have the right to, like, make a film like this or tell this story? Right. And I, I, get, I get that sentiment, but part of that was, like, it's Holocaust erasure. Or you're making the Jews like the Nazis. I just, I don't think anyone with a brain really takes that away. It's not a pro-Nazi film at all. And it's, if anything, it's it's embodying the anger of the mm. Jewish people, if anything. And yes, no, Quentin Tarantino does not have roots from the Holocaust personally, but does feel like he's capturing the sentiment to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not Jewish, so I guess don't don't matter what I think either. But right. Yeah, I don't know. It's um, it's funny because like, you check check Rotten Tomatoes and you, you wouldn't understand that there actually was a lot of critical up and down. This it's funny because I mentioned some people just think the movie is structurally just off, and other people just have these really hard top level thematic problems, as you said. So um, another one that I think has aged well, and I think a lot of those concerns have faded away. You just don't hear them 
talked about that much. I mean, in terms of yeah. the problems with Tarantino's movies, this is towards the bottom of the list for most people. I feel like the N-word stuff definitely will come up first, and even his treatment of female characters probably as well. Um, yeah, but um, another 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 talking point that accompanies his movie, uh, which is on brand at this point. And then Django, 2012. Django! Django! <laughs> Jamie Foxx, Christoph Waltz again, Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, Samuel L. Jackson, Carrie Washington, Washington, Walton Goggins. Jonah Hill. Jonah Hill. <laughs> yeah, another one of those cameos that's just like... Fantastic. Yeah, shows up and kind of steals the scene he's in. Fucking made these hoods. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, we're all grateful to your wife for making the hoods, okay? <laughs> we just... can all agree that it could have been done better. <laughs> Next time. <laughs> fantastic cameo so good this follows the story of uh dr king schultz guy a bounty hunter goes out kidnapping outlaws bringing them in to get the the reward he uh buys Django, or i guess takes Django um to help him uh, find some outlaws and then feels compelled to help Django find his wife who he's been separated from and which leads him to the plantation of uh calvin candy played by Leonardo DiCaprio. This was, in college, probably my favorite movie. We watched this dozens of times my my junior and senior year. Uh, just really, really wonderful. You know, I when I think about Django, and what I think really stands out to me is it feels very much like, like a Tarantino movie, but almost like modernized in a sense. You know, it's telling this like po- this uh, Civil War era movie or, a, you know, tale, but he infuses it with like rick ross songs and that's right really even though it's hundred black coffins for a hundred dead men and even though it's like this very like spaghetti western type it doesn't feel old or aged anyway it's just is really crisp and uh uh, there's not really i don't really have too much bad to say about it um uh, where are you at with Django? yeah it's the first one i bought on blu-ray i had all the other ones on dvd at this point uh up to this point yeah i think it's a movie that because it's so pulpy it's just really easy to jump in on a lot of these scenes and have a good time because Walt and Fox, for the most part, are having a good time. Another movie that got some criticism for Spike from Spike Lee and people in general just because it's really, uh, I don't want to say fetishizing slavery, but it's making it seem like it wasn't as tough at times. I think just because the overall air and attitude of the movie is more upbeat. I would, I mean watching this movie doesn't make you feel like slavery was easy or anything i think that's also a pretty dumb thing to say but some people had a problem with you know that and again there's a lot of n-words in this but contextually we're talking about slave owning people using slurs it's not that far of a a walk in my book um even if it's not fun to watch and hear but yeah it's uh you know, Walt, I remember rooting against Waltz for the Oscar. I forget exactly who I was running for, but he won. He wins again for supporting, which is really just another twist on what he did for Landa. And I think some people were like, oh, yeah, nominate the white guy again. Fox didn't even get nominated at all, uh, yada, yada. But it's uh, it was, you know, really a blockbuster for him, making $262 million here in the States. And for an R-rated adult movie, that's becoming rarer and rarer by the month these days but yeah i think Django is you know it, it doesn't do anything super memorable the way stuff like pulp fiction or reservoir dogs or bastards does so i think critically it's hard to keep this at the top of a list because those other movies really 
go above and beyond or influence things in special ways. But just a pure enjoyment factor, it's right up there. Yeah, I think I think it's it's still has held up quite fine, fondly. Yeah, and that that final shootout scene is right up there with the uh, final scene of Kill Bill Volume One in terms of just absolute gore. And, right. You know, just to go back to it, Christoph Waltz was up against uh, Alan Arkin in Argo, De Niro in Silver Lines Playbook, Philip Seymour Hoffman from The Master, That's and Tommy it. Lee Jones for Lincoln. Yeah, and I think Hoffman. Probably looking back, the deserve to win, um, but Waltz is spectacular. And it's that that scene where he uh, Calvin Candy's making him shake his hand, and he shoots him. And he's like, I couldn't resist, and then just gets blown <laughs> away. It's like, I awesome scene. Yeah, Django, it's up there for me. We'll we'll probably do a quick recap of our favorites at the end, but just for time's sake, why don't we move on to Hateful Eight? You know, this is his most recent movie, and probably after. Well, I haven't seen Death Proof, so probably my least favorite uh, Tarantino. Still very good, in my opinion. Uh, has Samuel L. Jackson, Kurt Russell, Jennifer Jason Lee, Walton Goggins, Bruce Tim Dern. Roth. Yep, Bruce Dern, Michael Madsen. Really solid cast. Uh, these... Don't forget uh, Chaining Tatum. Got so many yeah. chains, they call me Chaining Tatum. <laughs> uh, eight Strangers kind of are holed up in this stagecoach stopover. Somewhere in uh, post-Civil War Northwest, it mm. seems like. Kind of the story about them. I don't even know how to describe it. Just like not trusting each other. Yeah. Uh, not getting along. <laughs> I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on this? So I, I really liked Hateful Eight you know, coming out of it. I still think of it pretty warmly. I know it's definitely more of a mixed uh, reception. And it, it grows far less than Django. But I think the foreplay, the setup of it all, it's 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 kind of classic old school Tarantino because it's really all dialogue. It's just these people talking around, circles around each other slash openly shit talking each other in this cabin, and yeah. that's just pure script and pure acting. And that reminds me of Reservoir Dogs and stuff like that. Um, it, well, yeah, it, is it a little long in the tooth? Probably. I really wish I could have seen it on a seventy millimeter, just because everyone said that was fantastic and. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is getting uh, that release in like New York and LA and at like Alamo Draft House Theater. So I would love to see how he shot it, considering QT is someone to do use lots of like real film in his filmmaking. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think Hatefully, it's kind of being like lost the time a little bit. Like it's been on Netflix for a while, but not a lot of people ride for it the same way they even ride for a less heralded film like Jackie Brown. So mm-hmm. I think it's just, you know, it's just like solid Tarantino. It doesn't do anything he hasn't done before. It's a lot of the actors you've seen him use before. It's none of their best movies of his. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, it's unremarkable, but I still thought it was a great time. I would say Jennifer Jason Lee is like fantastic in this. Oscar nominated. Yep. And she totally deserved it. I, I think that this does something really well that maybe we haven't touched on enough, but Tarantino is able to build out characters so quickly and in these little ways help you understand who the character is whether it's samuel L. jackson in this movie where his character has the fake lincoln letter uh, as a way of like right. getting people to like get off his back you know or uh even thinking back to something like uh jackie brown how like you have the scene where uh lewis and i forgot what her name is uh ordell's white girlfriend are in the house and then they, they have sex really quickly and they just go back to like smoking pot and you kind of get the sense of like they're these like just total 
druggies, but also these like weird, like huge. I don't even know how to describe it, but it really just gives you a sense of who they are. Just the way that that whole scene goes down, or even again that movie, like Michael Keaton, the way he like eats food in that movie is so like specific to like the character he is. He has these really, he's so focused on the details of things. You really, he really builds out characters well and makes these really really interesting characters. And I think that's out of everything, the strength of Hateful Eight is everybody in that that stopover is really uh, fleshed out really well and uh, interesting, even if the movie itself isn't the most captivating <laughs> Tarantino. It's released on Netflix as a four-part mini, like, miniseries, basically. Yeah, that was I think that was done after the fact. Yeah, it's kind of funny to think of Hateful Eight and Jackie Brown in tandem as you just did, but it's uh, you know, the miniseries. I, know I haven't watched it that way. I'd I, I like to rewatch it. I don't think I've seen it since I saw it in the theater, so I'd be curious to see how the runtime lasts when the, the beats are familiar. But it's one I feel like I'm defending more because I want to defend it, even though I don't have any like great reasons for. So yeah. I feel like it just kind of needs to be at the bottom of a list or towards the bottom if you're being objective. Uh, as we're wrapping up, one thing we didn't I don't I don't know if we mentioned, but I just wanted to highlight again. Tarantino, other than Jackie Brown, write, writes all these stories. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in an age where uh, the same time we're reviewing his new movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, we're going to be talking about Alliance. I think there's something to be said for having these original stories and being able to uh, come up with something that other people aren't. So uh, tons of credit to him. And obviously, if, if you haven't checked out these movies, we, we can't yeah. recommend enough to Where are you? <laughs> so we're, we got a packed episode uh, coming up for you next week. Um, so... Please subscribe for that. Dave, just before we, we wrap up, give me your like top three or four Tarantino films. Yes. Yeah. Pulp Fiction 1, Kill Bill Volume 1, 2, and then Bastards or Reservoir Dogs 3 and 4, subject to change. Mm-hmm. Then I'll have Django, then Jackie Brown, Kill Bill 2, Hateful Eight, Death Proof. That's the whole list. Um, yeah. Jackie Brown might be too low for some people, but I think overall it's... There are certain tiers that are pretty unimpeachable in this mm-hmm. filmography, and it comes to personal preference for how you sort those tiers out for yourself. Yeah, I I don't have my full list, uh, but uh, obviously Death Proof wouldn't be on it. But Pulp Fiction and then uh, Inglorious Bastards are like one A one B for me, I think, and then Django, Kill Bill, um, and then from there it's I don't know probably Reservoir Dogs, Jackie Brown. Hateful Eight, so it, I agree. I think that there's certainly a the cream that's, that's at the top, but the whole body of the the dish is worth <laughs> chewing into. So certainly, definitely do that. Um, so on top of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Lion King, what else are we gonna be talking about next week, Dave? The Farewell from Lulu Wong with Aquafina. Mm-hmm. Cannot wait to talk about that. Big Little Lies season two. Uh, Rich Brian's. New album, The Sailor, YBN Corday's debut album, Chance the Rappers, in heavy air quotes, debut album, <laughs> as well <laughs> what's, as what's maybe the, some Marvel time? news out of San Diego Comic-Con. A shit ton of stuff, so keep up on it. Yeah, subscribe. Uh, go to SoundCloud.com slash NostalgiaPod. Go to Twitter at NostalgiaPod and follow us on Spotify, Nostalgia Best of 2019. We love you. We appreciate you. Go see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Peace out. Yeah.